Amen. Well, good morning, Anthem Church. Uh, I'm excited to be in Philippians 2. It's a passage that I just, over the last three, four years, have learned to love uh, because it so plainly shows us the beauty of Christ, but at the same time, it also kind of gives us uh, some equipping as followers of Jesus of how we should be uh, living our lives. And so, like Matt said last week, he preached on uh, really this idea, the, the work of Christ, that God, in love, in mercy, sends his son, God-man, Jesus Christ, to earth so that humanity would have a way back to right standing before God. And so last week he shared how Jesus' motive and posture in his heart in coming to earth was not one where he was clinging to the throne, grasping at this authority, but instead, in light of his love, would come to earth with joy, like Hebrews 12 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus comes not out of this bitterness or frustration or, God, why did you give me this role, but comes with gladness, knowing the impact that God's presence on earth would have among what formerly was God's people, people who had gone And so that's what Matt was preaching on last week, the work of Jesus. And we hear a message like that, and we see that in Scripture, and we hold on to it. But then there's also this tension because the world that we live in offers quite a different sort of life. Even though God's Word would call us to bring God glory and to do good to others, to be salt, to be light to other people, our culture here in America, throughout so many cultures, tends to be exactly the opposite. And so if God has called the people of God to gather on a Sunday morning, we can look at at our country and know that one in four people say, yeah, I'll show up to church on a weekly basis. Three in four, three out of four don't. Kind of signaling, showing us we might not actually value honoring God. We might not actually desire to hear from his word. We can also look at statistics and know that one in three have criminal records. Like that includes people in here. And that doesn't mean that there can't be salvation or redemption from sin in our lives, whether we're going against the law or whether we're going against God's word. Grace can be given there, but it shows, it's a sign that we tend to be people who think of self, even if there's a law in place that the government's put there, hopefully for our good. We love going opposite. God has called us to the opposite. I was reading an article in a magazine about that sort of topic this last week as well, about uh, just humanity and, and their desire or lack of desire to do good. Popular Science magazine says, if you need an American to do something, don't mention the common good, teamwork, or caring for others. That's kind of the reality of corporate America so often. That's the reality in the workplace, in our family units, in the government. What was put in place originally as as more of like a a formative thing, through sinful humans, we've kind of turned that into this performative, me, me, me sort of entity. Whether it's the big organization, whether it's changing and shifting the school system to just be about an individual or a certain political scheme, We miss out on this call that God has for us to not only seek him and honor him and glorify him, but we miss out on the call as well to to be a community of people who care for the good of others. 
And so this morning in Philippians 2, 1 to 4, we're, we're going to see God's design for the local church, for his people to not only receive his love and accept it, but also to display it with how we spend our time, how we spend our energy, so that we can be a, a lighthouse in, in a pretty dark culture, in, in a place that needs to hear and know and love and obey Jesus. And so I'm going to pray for us, and uh, we're going to ride on that main idea this morning, that we receive the love of Christ to display his love with, with how we live. And so let me pray, and we'll get going on the text. God, we, we thank you. We thank you that you have written uh, truth through the hands of man, through the power of the Spirit, God. Years ago, crafted this storyline for us to know and understand. God, I pray that as we uh, open up Philippians, that we would be able to see truth and not only see it, but also apply it into our lives, God, through the working of your Son, the presence of your Spirit. Any distractions, God, I ask that those would be put to the side and that we would just be able to zoom in, focus on your Word. It's what we need. In Jesus' good name, amen. Well, as you guys are turning to Philippians 2, I would love to just kind of share the outline of the text. Uh, first thing we're going to be doing is looking at Christ as the source, kind of this fountain, this spring of love that we can experience. And then that'll be in verse 1. And then verses 2 to 4, we're going to be looking at how we, the church, have to respond to that. So there's realities of Christ to be understood, but there's also responses that we, as God people, uh, ought to have. And so let me read uh, verses 1 to 4 for us this morning. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It's a tough one. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. First thing we see in the text there is, is Paul's attitude. He, he's a little punchy, using a little bit of sarcasm with, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort in love, the Philippian people knew that there was encouragement in Christ, and they knew that there was, there was comfort in love. And so, so Paul, with his, this little bit of attitude, a little bit of a fatherly tone, is entering in and showing Christ is providing you two things right out of the gate, encouragement and comfort. Encouragement, meaning this exhortation, meaning solace, meaning support and relief, that's provided through Christ, but also this comfort in love, this ease and freedom that kind of cultivates itself through love, which is in, in the Greek, agape, love feast is what it means. And so Jesus provides encouragement, but he also provides this overwhelming, unconditional love for his people to experience. How does he do it? To what Matt hit on last week, verses 7 and 8 in Philippians 2. It's talking about where this heavenly love comes from, where this encouragement comes from. Is verse 7. Jesus emptied himself, coming in human form. He came to be with us. God intersecting with his creation is an act of love, an encouraging thing to know that our creator is among us. 
Then we can see in the next verse that not only was he here, but he came to save us. He, he died on the cross. He was resurrected. In light of our darkness, he comes as light to bring restoration and hope. What this meant for the people of Philippi, uh, of people that were pretty distracted in a culture that was pretty godless, what it meant was there was hope on the horizon. They had been running after their, their cultural tendencies of their day, their time. They were, they were kind of this uh, gateway city in between the east and the west, a cultural hub that had for years been known as a place of godlessness. And so Paul, bringing the good news of Jesus, provides hope, encouragement, and love for a people who were wandering lost. And so Paul delivers God's word and people come to faith and Philippi is transformed. And the, the culture in that city through a church, it begins to change. And as it changes, what, what that picture in my mind kind of displays is Christ coming in as this air support and reinforcement for the people of God. They had been lost in Christ and salvation. They found hope. I don't know if you've watched it, many World War II movies or anything like that, but I tend to watch a lot. I was a history major. And that idea of fighting in the trenches, the allies, and you got the enemy coming here. And there's so many times in war where it seems like things aren't going to turn the way that you would hope. The enemy might be overwhelming the front line. But to hear, to see, to experience air support from on high, to be able to look back and see that reinforcements are coming is a moment of hope and just joy and elation where it's like, man, I thought, I thought our journey was done here. I thought we weren't going to be able to endure. But by God's grace, look up. There is reinforcement. That's what the gospel encouragement was for the people of Philippi. And that's what Paul had experienced, and that's why he's penning this letter. It's why he's writing this good news letter to the people of Philippi to encourage them and comfort them because they were a small cell of followers of Jesus who were in a culture that was running a different direction. But that good news message was air support, was reinforcement, and was hope so that they would be able to walk and live with the same confidence that Paul had experienced. Because Paul, at this point, I mean, he's writing a letter from a dungeon in Rome. Not exactly the, the most fun place to write a letter to a group of people, right? Like most of the time we're writing postcards and happy places to people. And here Paul, in chains, in darkness, is writing this message of hope. And his attitude is that of encouragement and comfort. And so the first thing that Jesus is, is he's our source of encouragement. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes through salvation. Next observation we see in the text. If there's any encouragement in Christ, which there is, any comfort from love, which there is, and any participation in the Spirit. Other translations might say partnership, communion, fellowship. What Paul sorry, means by that is Jesus isn't only coming once and, and providing just this momentary support, this air support, this reinforcement, but he's actually going to dwell within you. It's not just this one act and then out, but God's presence being available to the life of a believer and saying yes to Jesus, there's the reception of the Holy Spirit, and that means that God is within. And so Jesus being not only the source of encouragement and comfort, but also the presence of God within the life of a believer 
through the Holy Spirit. John 14, this is Jesus speaking. He says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you on the front line, he says. I will come to you. So salvation in Jesus, it's justification before God, but it's also receiving his spirit within, being able to partner with God, participate with God in the work of God through him. And so the Philippians are hearing from Paul that they have the freedom to get off their pedal bikes of try to figure out life on your own and actually just turn within knowing the loving and faithful and redeeming God that his presence was with them. The final thing we see Christ providing, Christ being the source of, the end of verse 1, is affection and sympathy. Jesus saves, he dwells within, and he shows compassion. The man on the cross, full of mercy, full of pity, full of tenderness for broken people, shares his fatherly heart through affection and sympathy for lost people. Because the reality was, for the people of Philippi, they received this letter, they received this encouragement, they received salvation in Christ. But that didn't mean everything was suddenly completely different forever, that they wouldn't have any sort of trials. That's not the gospel. But it would be that as life happens to them, as life happens at them, that they would be able to be partnered with God in whatever might become. And so they had this affection and sympathy of the Lord alongside them. I heard a story uh, a couple of years ago about a, a dad and family that they, they were excited about a vacation that they had planned. They were going overseas to just enjoy a part of the world that they haven't been to before. Somewhere along the lines, though, the, the dad kind of failed to communicate to all the kids. And uh, it's the night before they're flying and goes up to his youngest son's room and interacting with his kid. And he's like, man, you excited for tomorrow? And the dad notices just a, a, a lot of sadness and bothered face on the kid and his dad kind of starts to wonder like man what's going on like this kid so far in life has loved adventure he's loved traveling loves the idea of airplanes he asks his kid what, what's going on buddy like you're not wanting to go and the kid ends up saying well dad i i don't i don't want to go overseas i just want to be with you. And the kid had failed to understand or the dad had failed to communicate like, hey, I am with you. Your compassionate, loving, caring father who's provided for you to this moment, who's going to provide for you as we go overseas on this vacation, who's going to provide for you after that time. I am with you. And that's the same sort of affection and love that we are promised in a relationship with Jesus, that we have the love of the father with us wherever we go. Because he is an affectionate, compassionate, and sympathetic God. And I think so many times we forget that, we don't understand that, or we don't remember that. We don't remember the power of the gospel. And then we get in moments and we think that we are just in it on our own. And we're not. He is with us. The helper is with us. 
And we don't have to live life with this fear or this insecurity or this doubt or this ongoing frustration. And as those emotions do arise, we in turn can fall back to God's word, reading Psalms, reading the, the promises of him, knowing that we have an affectionate, loving, and caring father. In our imperfections, we, by God's grace, get to experience perfection in him. And so as we're receiving that love, as we're remembering the gospel, I, I just have to say we are fools if we don't do something with that. If we receive a gift to not extend that to those among and around us, it's a foolish act because God in his mercy, full of love, this agape love feast, even though we're dirty sinners, God's provided a love and he calls us to extend and share that love through the display of our own lives. And so the call that, that Paul has for the Philippian church is, hey, we're not going to stop with just understanding the realities of Christ. We're actually going to transition and take those realities that we're learning to love and understand, and we're going to respond. We're going to do something with it. And that's what the next verses here in 2 to 4 are talking about. And so let's reread that. Paul speaking. Verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul's commanding the, the people of God here, complete my joy by being of the same mind. The first response the church is to have is to be of the same mind. Have the same mind. And the Philippians, as they're hearing this letter read out loud to them, they're probably like, man, have the same mind as God? Like, that seems difficult. Which immediately probably begs the question in their mind, like, how are we to have the same mind as Christ? How do we have the mind of God? To which he answers in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, which then begs the question like, well, how do we be in Christ Jesus? We understand that, okay, you want us to have your mind, God, and that, that is through being in Christ, but how do we be in Christ? And that's the gospel. The first response that the church is to have is to understand and accept the gospel is becoming part of his family. Romans 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so it's this idea of the gospel being adopted into the family of God through relationship with him through the work of Jesus on the cross and through the work of the Spirit within us. And so being in Christ is partaking in what Martin Luther called the great exchange, which is just beautifully written. All of his, all of our condemnation goes on Jesus and salvation is given to us. All of our sin goes on Jesus and all of his perfection 
is given to us. Our separation from God goes on Jesus, and reconciliation is given to us. All of our pride goes to Jesus, and his humility comes to us. So the first response of the church to be of the same mind of Christ happens through personal relationship with him, through the work of the cross. So we see the love, we experience the realities of Christ. We then accept his gift to us. And that's an amazing thing to see happen, to watch people in this community go from death to life, to be living life with this culture life that, that we have. You know, we're, we're born into the families that we're born in. There's, there's highs, there's lows, there's ups, there's downs. To be walking that sort of life and then to have this crisis moment where we're humbled and we're tempted to turn to the world. Do we turn to the addiction? Do, do we turn to, you know, just another relationship or something else? And by God's grace, we've been able to witness so many people saying, you know, I'm not going to run to that other thing anymore. I actually am beginning to understand the realities of Christ, his salvation that's available to me. People confessing their sin, young men, young women, walking away from darkness, accepting Christ, and walking in the light. People going from a world of drinking to a world of discipleship. A world of I'm the pilot to a world of, hey, actually, uh, Lord, I, I need you. Will you be air support in my life? Because when I'm rock bottom, I've realized I can't do this alone. And it's that surrender before God. So the first response of the church is to be of the same mind. And that's through the work of Jesus. Second response we see in the text is that we would have the same love, or be of the same heart. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. The same love begins to happen through the work of the Holy Spirit. The helper, the, the comforter that we talked about earlier. As we humble ourselves before the Lord, we begin to look more like him. In Psalm 25, 9, it says, He guides the humble, in what is right, and he teaches them his way. So after committing our lives to Christ, we begin to, we begin to spend time in God's word. And as we spend time in God's word, there are things that we read that convict us. And that conviction leads to confession before God and before others. And that confession in the work of a believer then leads to change. And so even if we've really messed things up in our past, we experience the grace of Christ for salvation... And then through his working, through our surrender to him on the daily basis, through communion with God, we get to experience just a whittling away all of our days long so that we can look more and more like the very people that God has designed us to be. People who are, are receiving his love and displaying his love. So it happens through humility, a humbling before the Lord what Matthew Henry in one of his commentaries has called this death of self for the sake of other. Dying to self for the sake of his mission, dying to self for the love of others. It's like 
upon receiving Christ, we, we get a pair of glasses after not having been able to see our whole lives. And all of a sudden we put these glasses on and we look around us and we have this heart, this affection, this care, this sympathy for others. And what had previously been minds of selfishness get redeemed by exactly the opposite. And we begin to just be about other people rather than ourselves. It's not perfect. It's, it's still working with, with broken sinners. So, so we mess up at that in different times. But God's call and God's provision of his spirit in that is a perfect thing. Providing us a heart that doesn't have selfish motives anymore. Providing us a heart that thinks of others more significant. Galatians 5 talks about what that spirit within us provides. It gives us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So by God's grace, the longer we're walking with Jesus, the more we're displaying his love through that heart, through that attitude. The final thing we see in the text is that we, the church, as followers of Jesus, would be of the same life. Reread three and four again because we need it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's, it's an attitude thing, but it's also an action thing. Out of the overflow of our love for the Lord, we ought to have this overflow for the love of the world around us. It's the same idea in Luke where he shares the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And so what Paul and, and Luke here through Christ are saying is your actions, the things on the outside, the choices that you make, those matter. And it's not just this intention thing, but it's this follow-through thing. And as we're using our lives every given day, we're to have that conscious effort over and over to be for the glory of God, to be for displaying His goodness through love to Him and love to others. So Paul was challenging the Philippians, stop living as prideful, too busy, wrapped in our culture sort of people. Stop the impatience with the wife or the kids. The husband, show understanding. Stop raising voices and arguments and start to listen. Start showing grace and compassion in your actions for the hurting and lost. Like the Lamb of God who we sung about this morning, who's delivered us, lay down our life for others. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It's not this Valentine's Day charge of love people, but it's this call of God to understand his goodness and his mercy and his grace and his love and receive that and extend that to the world that we live in. That's in the classroom. That's in the workplace. That's wherever we go. The breakfast table, the dinner table, the random runs with the roommates. Everywhere we go, we are to be displaying the goodness of God through our actions. And we're hypocrites if we grab it in name or grab it in idea or grab it in intention and never do 
anything with it. So that's why I think Paul is writing with this attitude and this emotion of like, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort in love. He's like, Philippians, you know this love. So take this love into your everyday life and interact with the world in such a way that they would see God through how you live, through how you love, through how you practice patience, through how you sacrifice. It's countercultural but it's God's call. There's a family vacation I went on uh, a few years ago. By that, I mean a long time ago, 1999, uh, up to Minnesota. Uh, We would go on family vacations a lot, just to different uh, lakes up there. Uh, But at one point, we went up to Itasca State Park, and and that's the, the home of the Mississippi's headwaters. And so my mom had sent me a couple pictures of it this last week, and Fun to remember those things, but then also interesting to look back and be like, I don't think I really understood what that was, like what the headwaters of the Mississippi meant. Because when I was up there, it was a pretty simple thing. You know, there's a fountain, there's a source, there's a spring happening, and then there's a stream flowing out of it. And then I, yeah, while I was there, I was just like, okay, there's a stream, cool. But now looking back on that and realizing just the, the power and force, the millions and millions and millions and tons and gallons of water that flow from that, the species that live out of that, the irrigation that happens from that is the same sort of fountain and flood sort of thing that Christ calls for the church. He is the source. He is the fountain through grace, through salvation, through the presence of his spirit in his church. That's an ongoing, constant thing. And it's up to us, like, are are we going to be a part of that? And if so, if we're chosen believers following after him, are we going to display that? Or are we going to kind of just leave things at the headwaters and be like, oh, cool stream, and then we're just going to kind of be a little cool stream? Like, why would we do that? He, He calls us to be this flood, this force, this love. And so the call in the text from Paul to the, the people of Philippi and the call to us today would be that we would be people who take the fountain and become the flood through the power and presence of God in us. We're to be this flood of love and care and affection, not only for a local church and who we are here, but for everyone beyond these walls. And we're called to do it in the same sort of love feast sort of way, where it's this unconditional, patient, enduring love, the same love that Jesus provided for us. So that's why here at Anthem, we desire to just have this culture of seeing and understanding grace and then sending that grace on to others. So we want to see it and we want to send it. We don't want to just hold it. And so for college students, it's being active in your dorms. It's caring about classmates, teammates. For, for parents, it's, it's having those conversations with your kids, sharing the good news of Christ over and over modeling the love of Christ with how you practice patience, even when they're being crazy. With how you practice love, even when they're maybe breaking your heart with choices they're making. And through that display of love, that patience, by God's grace, we see him continuing to work in others' lives. 
And so for some in here this morning, maybe you're not an adopted son or daughter of God through relationship with Jesus. The move is realizing that he is the fountain, the source, the provider for purpose, provider for hope and death. And yeah, John 14, 6, he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to be with the Father except through him, through the Son. So for some, it's becoming an adopted son or daughter of God. For others, you might have been Christian in name a lot of your life. It might be putting those lens on and having love and comfort and affection for people in a way that you haven't before. And it's turning from more of a nominal in-name Christian to a zealous Christian with passion, with care, with affection, with an enduring love. And, and it's letting the, the fountain of Christ within you flood out of you. It's not being this dam that's trying to hold back the love. We don't want to do that. We want to overflow it and extend it through how we live. From the little choices to the big choices and everything in between. God calls us to love others. To not be dams. You're not supposed to say that word in church. It's not be dams, but to be a conduit, extending that love over and over, and letting uh, the world know, love, and obey him more and more because of it. And for others in here, you've been doing that. You've understood the concept. Christ is the fountain, and we are the flood. And for you, keep loving on people. Keep reserving time in your schedule for hard conversations. Keep loving your kids. Keep loving your coworkers. Keep loving your connection group leaders. Because that's how the world sees that God is alive and at work. It's countercultural. It's different than the American landscape, right? But through the working of God, it is possible to be part of the, the flood of love to people who just need to hear and see the love of Christ. Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, uh, we look at your word and, and know that we fall short. Sometimes we, even after committing our lives to you, we, we make a mess of things. And so, God, I thank you for the unconditional love that you have for us, that you forgive us, that through the Spirit you change us. And, God, I pray for this church body. I pray for myself, for my family, for the people in our midst, for the people beyond these walls, that we would learn to understand you as the fountain more and more through being in your word, through being among your people. And, God, I pray that we would learn to die to self for the sake of you, for the sake of others, day after day. That we could flood the world with your love. Not in a superficial or shallow way, but through sharing the good news of Christ. And through modeling the life of Christ with how we live. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.